Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Borderlands session of January 2021. On this occasion, the topic that we have reflected about is the bread of salvation, bread discovering the fullness of God's saving work. Our guest speaker of tonight's session is Professor Tom Grex, who is head of divinity and Marshall chair at Aberdeen University. Be all of you welcome to listen from the main body of this session of what Professor Tom Gregs have shared with us today. And feel free to interact with us on social media using the hashtag, the bread of salvation. Thank you, Professor Tom Gregs for joining us today. And we hope that you all enjoy this podcast um, and everything related with Borderlands uh, from Aberdeen Methodist Church. Thank you very much, everyone. That's really kind of you. And I must say that seeing the faces of all of you not covered by masks and not at a socially distanced um, extent has been a, a real joy. I, I, I find uh, digital engagement a bit overwhelming and not always the best context um, in which to pray. Um, so I've not been as present at some of the Zoom church meetings as I should have been, but it's been such a delight to see to see friends um, and, and to see faces that, that I know and, and cherish and love. So um, thank you for letting me have that joy at the end of a long and tiring day. I, 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 I want to talk a little bit about this book um, in today's session. Um, I, I've never really understood myself as an academic, um, which I, I think some people find a bit strange. I'm not somebody that if they close the divinity department down would happily move into philosophy or history or something. Uh, I've always really understood myself as a pietist preacher with a PhD. Um, and, and I think this book is my sort of best expression of me. It, it's maybe worth noting that all of you in some ways get a mention uh, in this because I start the book in the very first page in the very first sentence by saying that this is really a book that's been shaped by the gospel that I felt called to preach um, and, and therefore sort of lots of sermons and lots of engagements uh, with particular churches um, uh, particularly at the moment churches in the northeast of Scotland and especially um, Aberdeen Methodist Church. Um, I decided to, to write this book and I'm actually beginning work on a, a follow-up book called uh, The Depth of Discipleship, but I decided to, to write this little book really out of a sense uh, of the need for us always to find the core message that Christianity is about amongst all of the other complexities and issues and difficulties that we engage in. Um, I'm told by my father who worked as a sculptor for a long time that when you are refining metal, and I've probably shared this with some of you before, but when you are refining metal, um, in the course of refining metal, you, you have all kinds of very valuable byproducts which you burn off along the way. Uh, so if you're wanting to refine gold, for example, one of the last byproducts that you get rid of is silver. Uh, something which in and of itself is extraordinarily precious and valuable, but it isn't the gold that you're after. I, I think that one of the dangers that we have 
within the life of the church sometimes is that we can uh, only in our own life but in our engagement with uh, the broader community with the city with the world of which we're a part uh, we can so often find ourselves overwhelmed by all kinds of different and competing instincts and imperatives you know we can see that there's all sorts of things that we might do um, all sorts of engagements that we might have but the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is is this really the gold is this the the most precious thing that we could engage with the thing that is of most value and and for me I, I guess as a Christian as a Methodist um as a preacher, um, the gold that I think we are always searching after, the gold that we have to give, the gold that we're trying to communicate in whatever form or whatever, seems to me to be the message of God's salvation, the economy of salvation uh, in that, that God offers to us in God's grace with the world. Uh, and the very breadth of all of the areas of life and the world that that touches. Um, I remember I was actually talking to another PhD student today about this as a, a preacher on note, uh, preaching a sermon on what must I do to be saved? And I told the very wise um, uh local preacher that I was on note to, a man called Tom Smith, who's passed into glory 20 years ago, probably, uh, that I was planning to preach a five-point sermon on each one of those words, what must I do, and then to be saved. Uh, and he said to me, you've got it all wrong, lad. It's the next verse that you need to be interested in. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it, I was reflecting on that today just in the course of discussion with, with another student, but it seems to me that this little book in some ways is, it, it is the attempt to say what does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it mean to ask the question what must I do to be saved or what must we do to offer salvation to others? Um, and, and to do so in recognition of all that Christ um, has done for us. So what I'm trying to do within the within the book is to broaden our horizons a little bit in relation to that, to say that we are constantly engaged in restricting the um, salvific operation, the salvific work of God in all of the kinds of ways that we think about it, that we talk about it, that we engage in discussing it that we can often compartmentalize things, some things in sort of social action area and some things in life of worship and uh, some things in political involvement and uh, some things in community building and some things in reconciling work and reconciliation. But really we find, I, I think as Christians, when we're really striving after that gold, a way to understand how all of this, all of this good work is, and an outworking, an outpouring of God's um, amazing and unfathomable and uh, glorious and majestic salvation. I start the, the, the book off in the introduction by uh, a few examples of what I, I mean by that. And one of them, uh, I can say this easily to this crowd because you might well have seen them. 
Uh, one of the examples that I give is the push that used to exist in The Independent on a Saturday. Um, I, I'm quite a fan of Independent as a, as a newspaper. And uh, I, I used to really enjoy the Saturday Puzzles page. And one of the sections that they had in it was a, a, a picture of an item or a series of pictures of items where they'd zoomed in really intensely, really detailedly on one tiny, tiny part of an object. And you had to try desperately to work out what the whole of that object was, that the focus had become so orientated on one component of the object that actually everything else was put out of distortion. Everything else was very difficult to uh, see or to perceive or even to infer or to begin to understand. Um, that, that the puzzle involved, therefore, trying to work out what the object was, where the picture had been taken so closely. Um, I, 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 I'm really struck by the fact that so often when we talk about salvation, that's precisely what we do. Uh, so often when we talk about salvation, what we do is hone in, focus in, microscope in, put the magnifying glass down on one particular area, and that when we do that, actually, what we can begin to do is to lose the, the bounty, the abundance, the excess, the breadth of all that God does for us in God's saving grace. Um, similarly, uh, an image that I use sometimes when I'm teaching students uh, systematic theology, when they very first begin at the university, I, I often say that... Um, one of the dangers that we have when we talk about the stuff that God does is that it can be a little bit like being in the Sistine Chapel and being a bit too close to the ceiling, uh, that what we do very often is see one aspect of what God does and we fail to see the great surrounding abundance, the, the excess, the place of this within the broader scheme or the broader economy. And if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel, what you want to do is to lie on the and try to take in as much of it as you can at once. Um, another image that I use sometimes with them uh, as well to try to set the text uh, for what I do in this little book is uh, to talk about the water lilies, Monet water lilies in the Musée de l'Orangerie, where they're in this amazing art, these huge, huge canvases. And you stand in the Musée de l'Orangerie in the middle of all of these and you're overtaken by the immense enormity of these water lily paintings. They're all consuming. I say to my students sometimes that um, if we were to think that those water lilies was God, if we were to imagine that that kind of overwhelming visage that we're confronted with is God. All of creation would be just one brush stroke. Uh, and in fact, we find ourselves in the circumstance where we can't even stand outside of that brush stroke. The, the, the magnificence of it, the enormity of it is so far beyond our wildest imaginings. Um, and this is as true of God's salvation as anything else, because God is the God of our salvation. God is the God who saved. Um, I, I end, in fact, the introduction with by quoting three of one of my favourite hymns uh, by William Rees. Um, Here is love. 
And let, let me read that to you to try to set some of the context of what I've tried to say in the subsequent uh, chapters of the book. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, where the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. In thy truth thou dost direct me, thy spirit and thy word. And thy grace, my need is meeting as I trust in thee, my Lord. Of thy fullness thou art pouring. Thy great love out measure, full and boundless, drawing out my heart to thee. Uh, I find that little hymn by, by Rees one of the most powerful expressions of the vast grandeur, the enormity of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and it's trying to glimpse something of that, something of the floodgates, of the flow in which we are caught up in it, of the impact upon this, not just upon ourselves and upon the church, but upon the world uh, that I, I try to come to in this in this little book um there's four chapters in it and, and i'll try and just in a a minute uh or two for each chapter maybe three minutes maybe four you know what i'm like um give you just a little bit of an insight of what I, I try to talk about in it just to give you a flow of the of the basic argument uh the first chapter that i talk that i have is on the breadth of the cross um and I start off stealing a story from Metropolitan Callistus Ware, who, um, who taught me uh, patristics and um, Greek Orthodox theology when I was a, an undergraduate student, and I've updated it to my own circumstance. But, and I think it's a story that I've probably told. I told you that I've preached lots of this stuff in, in churches, I've probably told lots of you before. But there's a really disgusting restaurant that I absolutely adore, Paul, um, called the Red Hot Buffet. Uh, and, and the delight of the Red Hot Buffet as a restaurant is that it offers food from everywhere in the world. And you pay a, a, a single amount uh, as you go in, whatever it is, 11 pounds or something, and you can eat whatever you want. You can eat for as long as you want. You can eat whatever sort of food you want and, and you make the most of it when you're there. And, and I go and I'm always desperately disappointed by these extraordinarily dull people who, who go to this place and they maybe have, you know, a, a, a little bit of um, pasta and a, and, and a nice little um, Italian salad and then maybe a piece of garlic bread and they, they follow it afterwards with a bit of Italian ice cream. And uh, I always think to myself, you know, come on, um, that, this isn't what this sort of place is about. This is a place of feasting. There's everything here. There is... Um, uh, Thai food and Indian food, British food and Italian food and American food um, and Chinese food. You, you, you want to make most of it when you're and, and, and it's great to mix it up a bit and to 
uh, try all kinds of different things that you might not try otherwise. To taste it, after all, the idea of buffet is surely that you mix things up, that you feast on, on what's on offer. Um, I think I think the same thing when it comes to the cross. And this is what I try to explain. That, that what we do very often is we, we tend to get caught up with what just one dynamic of the cross. One thing that the cross has achieved, one model perhaps of what the cross does. And some of us will talk maybe in terms of substitution or we might talk about sacrifice or, or we might talk about as our representative or we might talk about the issues of justice that, with the cross or we might um, talk about the idea that um, uh, in his perfect obedience for the Father. Um, I, I get really saddened about the fact that, that churches um, and Christians particularly can get so uptight about the model or the explanation that they use when it comes to us. In, in fact, it's really important to remember that, that we don't actually have a dogma of salvation for all that it's important. It isn't like the um, Trinity or the Incarnation, that there is no... Uh, ecumenical confession like the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian symbol about it. We're told instead in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed simply that it was for us and our salvation that Christ came down, did all of these things, um, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and buried him on the third day, rose in accordance of the scriptures. It, it's for us and our salvation, but we don't get that unpacked. And in fact, the reason for that, it seems to me most appropriately, is the fact that uh, scripture is full of images all the way through it uh, uh, are not a kind of single course image, not just one image, not just one type of understanding, but that capture all kinds of things in a kaleidoscopic range of biblical images. So uh, it, scripture talks about what Christ was as redemption um, as, as buying back. But it's really interesting to, to note that that language of redemption, that language of buying back, is, is a Greek translation of two Hebrew words. And, and one word, um, which is a word that we see in, in, say, something like the book of Ruth, is about the buying back by a near kinsman. It, it's the buying back of one who is our family, if you like, our, our brother, one of our own kin. So even something like the image of redemption isn't the kind of idea of going and buying something back. It actually involves in itself two distinct ideas, one to do with buying back, one of a near kinsperson coming to the aid of a family member. And then there's also language of peace that comes through. The word um, salvation is in one sense um, taken directly from that word hoshia uh, or shalom, uh, the word that we, we get Jesus from, uh, well, the word Hushia is, is one of the words from which we get Jesus. And, and, and one of the things that God offers in, um, uh, in salvation is the offering of, of peace, peace between ourselves and God in, in a way that's reminiscent of some of the stuff that happens in, um, in Exodus, but also peace in a way um, that accords perhaps with some of the language that we get where Moses says that he's prepared to be blotted out of God's book for the sake uh, of, of people of Israel, if God will forgive them, that Moses takes that place to bring peace between God and the people through this one saviour or mediator. Um, what that 
means, what that on behalf of or for means, though, is in and of itself um, different in, in different parts of, of scripture. Because for can just be the sort of general for, you know, I do this for you. I, I, I'd like to give you this gift. It is for you. Or for can mean on behalf of, it can mean that I take your place in the sort of courtroom context um, that we can find. And, and actually, even when you read a passage like Romans 5, one of the great um, passages about salvation, where, it, where Paul writes, but God proves his love for us in the still sinners, Christ died for us, much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. Much more, surely, having been reconciled, we will be by his life. And we, we, we get in a passage like that, image upon image upon, even though we're told in verse 8, uh, Christ died for us in that very general way. In verse 9, it's then given to us that this is on behalf of us. And then by the time that we get to verse 10, the imagery is augmented and supplemented with a kind of personal account that we're saved by life now. That so often we try to reduce this stuff just to a single idea. The same comes with something like sacrifice, um, the word where we can think straightforwardly of imagery, you know, to do with the sacrificial lamb or the way that sacrifice was offered in the temple. But in fact, when we begin to think about how that sacrifice works, the New Testament, again, offers us multiple possibilities. So um, when we are, uh, when the New Testament, for example, talks about the sacrifice of atonement, uh, there's a Greek word that's utilized there called hilasterion. And that word actually means probably the mercy seat of God, not the sacrifice necessarily but actually the way in which the blood was scattered, the, the presence of God itself. So it can both images in it and so on and so on and so on, you know, that we're saved from sin, we're saved to life, we're saved from death, saved in Christ. Uh, I, I'm really struck when we come to these images, these biblical images, that the New Testament never reduces it to one. The New Testament gives us a few of ways to understand this. And even if you look at, say, some of the cross, you might say that there is in the cross a moment of community being made. So, so that part of salvation, part of what the cross does is that there are transformations of relationships so that Mary now becomes the mother of the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved, John, and John now is the son to Mary uh, from the cross. It seems to me, therefore, that it's so important we get caught up in this, these kinds of debates about whether this is to do with victory or to do with penal substitution uh, or to do with propitiation or expiation or all of these sorts of terminology that we use, but that instead we recognise the importance of the multiplicity of interpretations and, and all that the cross can tell, oral components through to the operation of what God does in this context as well. And, and that alongside all of that, we can't forget the narrative through which we're to read this story, as well as all of the reflection that we get, um, not only in Paul, but also in the language in the Gospels, that we still have this story of a man who dies because people kill him. A story where we get this very unexpected ending, actually, if you were to listen to it for the first time. So that's the best chapter and probably the most complicated one and certainly... I should say, by the way, that I have hardly any footnotes in this, and I know I've 
you, I think I've used all the Greek terms that I use at any point and I try and explain it going through. But having gone through, what, what I look at secondly is the breadth of salvation in, and I borrow a term from John Calvin here, the society of God. Um, uh, I, I, again, as I said to you, this book is a lot about what I preach and I've certainly used this as an image before, but I really hate traveling. And I really hate traveling because it makes me realize how much of a grump I am and, and how much actually at the end of the day, I'm not that keen on other people. So, you know, when it's a stranger invading my space slightly on an aeroplane or when people are wanting to get up and down 22 lap times or, you know, I find it just overwhelming. And, and, and I find the distress that I have in seeing, you know, people rush and take out the ankles of some 90 year old lady on a Zimmer frame just to be able to get on the plane first, really distressing. As humans, I think we find it really difficult actually to look beyond ourselves very often, to think beyond ourselves. And, you know, to my mind, that's part of what the story of the fall is all about. Uh, and this is what the second chapter is. I'm really struck by the fact that when you read the Genesis myth um, in Genesis 3 of the fall, you're told in that story is that humans fall from each other even before they've fallen from God. So they disobey God, but before that relationship is ruptured, there's this moment in the story where they recognize that they are um, naked and they hide, ashamed of themselves and of the other. And, and, and then there's that lovely moment where God finds them and says, what have you done? And Adam says, it wasn't me, God, it was, it was Eve, it was that woman that you gave me. And Eve says, don't blame me, God, it was that serpent that you created. And I've gone from a situation that we've had just a few verses before where Adam has said, finally, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, where Adam's been desperate for a companion who is like him in sharing the image of God and that together they share the image of God. All of a sudden they're attributing blame. And then what comes straight after that? Cain kills Abel and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, sin is as vertical. It disrupts our relationships as much as it, sorry, it is horizontal. It disrupts our relationships with each other as much as it's vertical. In fact, I don't think we can separate the two things from each other. And, and I, it's always an expression of grace. It's important that we recognize, in fact, that um, peace, self-control, love, joy, that these things are fruits of the spirit. They're always things given of God. And when we are allowed to live towards the other, actually because of something that God achieves. God achieves both in sending to who, you know, so the human being eats the fruit because we're tempted to be like God. That's what the temptation is. And we want to be like God. And God becomes human, not so that we might be like God, but so that we might learn what it is to be human. Learn what it is to be human in the one Jesus Christ who lives entirely for God and entirely for other people. And the class of that moment is the moment of the cross where in obedience to the Father, living entirely for the Father, he lives entirely for humanity, the humanity for whom he dies. Uh, and if, that makes sense in lots of ways because God is the God who loves humanity completely uh, or the creation completely. And the creation is the creation which is beloved of God. Furthermore, when, when the spirit comes, one of the things that God does through the fruits of the spirit, through the inbreaking of the spirit, is to create a community in the context of difference. 
and, and I think I've said to you before, or many of you before, there is something political, there's something economic about what happens at Pentecost, about the way that the early church operates, about things like Paul's statement in Galatians that there is no longer slave or free Jew or Gentile, male or female. Um, all of that is an outworking uh, of the salvific work of God. Why? Because one in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and I think, therefore, that the social gospel work that we do, the reaching out to people in sheer love, that isn't a separation from salvation. That is a participation in salvation. And particularly when it is in the givenness of the other, when it's not somebody who's just like us, but somebody that we um, live towards. To live towards. Uh, as I've probably already well overspoken my time, but if I'll, I'll try very quick on chapters three and four. Uh, in chapter three, what I look at is the breadth of grace for the world. So um, I, I'm struck by the fact that there are so many expressions in the gospel of the fact that salvation is far beyond the walls of the church that this isn't necessarily a secular agenda or a liberal theological agenda, but it's there very much in the New Testament texts and in the, uh, in fact, in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Um, so, so the rabbis can talk about the holy pagans. Um, they're very content about the fact that Ishmael um, is also uh, a, a child of God who is beloved in relationship to God. Um, so, so I try and look at those types of images as well as the role of the centurions and so forth in the New Testament to say, you know, we can't simply confine our imagination and remit of our own religious self-understanding. Uh, and, and then from there, I, I look at the way in which the imagery in, uh, of judgment operates in the New Testament, because, of course, that's the other part of salvation there's an urgency to it there's a moment in in which we're to decide and what i try to say there is is that, that imagery is deeply um self-defeating in certain ways that the sheep who think people who think that they are sheep discover that they are goats and the people who think that they are goats discover that they are sheep that there is a breadth to God's salvation because God sees in our hearts and not as the world sees. Uh, and that we stand alongside the world as those who also need forgiveness and continue to need forgiveness throughout our life. And since there's so many uh, on this call who I know are Methodists, I, um, I, I quote my favourite prayer of Wesley uh, in it. Forgive them all, O Lord, our sins of omission and our sins of commitment the sins of our youth and the sins of our riper years, the sins of our souls and the sins of our bodies, our secret and our more open sins, the sins of ignorance and of surprise, and our more deliberate and presumptuous sins, the sins we have ourselves and the sins we've done to please others, the sins we remember and the sins we have forgotten, the sins we have striven to hide from others, and the sins by which we have made Forgive them, O Lord, forgive them all for his sake, who died for our sins and rose for our justification. And now stands at thy right hand, take intercession for us, Jesus Christ, our very Lord. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is that we stand along having this easy division of saying we've asked for forgiveness. We've prayed for forgiveness. We're 
the ones who are saved is all in the New Testament. It's a much more complex plan than that. And even faith, even faith means reliance upon not sent to some set of intellectual claims. Um, let me just uh, perhaps read you um, uh, two uh, of the few quotations that are in here, just to give you a flavour of uh, better people than myself who've talked in this way. The first is Martin Luther, who says this, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched grace to none but those who are in disgrace therefore no arrogant saint or just or wise man can be material for god neither can he or she do the work for god but he or she remains confined within his or her own works and makes of themselves a fictitious a sensible false and deceitful saint that is a hypocrite and then finally uh, uh sec finally for this chapter is a little quotation one from john wesley because we might say, well, we're the ones that know salvation. You know, it's not just the case that all need to be saved and we stand alongside them and all can be saved and we're part of that. It's also the case that all can know that they are saved. But Wesley says this about the assured believer. This is how he describes the one with assurance. The scriptures describe that joy in the Lord, which accompanies the witness of the spirit as a humble joy, a joy that abases to the dust, that makes a pardoned sinner cry out, I am vile, and wherever lowliness is, there is meekness, patience, gentleness, long-suffering. There is a soft-yielding spirit, a mildness and sweetness, a tenderness of soul which words cannot express. But do these fruits attend to that supposed testimony of the spirit in a presumptuous person? Just the reverse. So I, I try to broaden out towards the world, but I guess in the last... of chapters what I do is all can be saved to the uttermost to some degree or I start on that track the next book will be a bit more about that uh, when I finally get round to do it and I look at the breadth of repentance the breadth of repentance um, we, we live today and I guess this is where end and relates to the city we, we live today in a world where people don't know what a moral compass is where relativism is the dominant form of um, ethical reflection, where people have to ask the name of who the little man is that hangs on a cross in a jeweler's shop, where people don't have the Sunday school upbringing that they had before, where the sorts of understandings of the law or the Ten Commandments that we might all have are simply not only strange to them, but in certain instances, they are antithetical to what people believe to be what's right. Um, we live in a context where I'm not sure the kind of engagement that we would have seen Billy Graham do, uh, and I'm a great fan of Billy Graham, uh, years ago works any longer. Um, because so often I think within the church, what we thought we've had to do is to make people into sinners that they can know salvation. And that seems to me to be entirely antithetical to the gospel. Jesus never goes around sins, to use a phrase from Bonhoeffer. He never preaches the gospel at one point, to use a phrase from Bart about the way certain evangelism takes place. 
Instead, he comes to them with good news. And one of the things that I find really intriguing about the gospel is that we're told that Jesus pretends to believe that God is at hand. And then Jesus never mentions repentance again through the Gospels. There's one occasion actually in relation to the disciples and what they should do. But Jesus never actually says repent to anybody. Um, I find that a really interesting, um, really interesting feature of the Gospel. And I think that I have to make sense of it is to say that when that verse comes about, um, Early in the gospel, if you think about something like Mark's gospel, where it's right at the beginning of the Galilean mystery, verses Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, that that effectively is like a subheading. It's a description of everything that goes afterwards, that all of the stories that follow, they're stories of repentance. And what we have to do, therefore, as those today who are called to share the story of salvation is to recognize what that repentance is. And I want to say that there's a breadth to it, and I'll give you a few seconds, but there is a common core. And the common core to repentance is that people turn towards Jesus, turn towards Jesus. In the church, we tend to preach, or we've traditionally preached, that people turn away from things. But you can turn away from something bad in all kinds of directions. But when we turn towards Jesus, we automatically begin to turn away from the things that have been destructive for us. And that's what I see happening in kinds of different contexts. Um, I don't think that we, as we place ourselves entirely with an understanding of ourselves that's nervous of talking about God or about salvation or Jesus Christ, or even perhaps repentance, although I'm not sure using that religious language is very helpful. I think we should recognize that, for example, Jesus holds the hand of Peter in law, who is sick and cannot respond to him. Silence of her own illness. In that context, that's an image of repentance because even in her helplessness, even in the fact that she can't respond, Jesus has turned to her. And by having Jesus hold her hand, she has turned to him. Uh, there's a story of people who turn to Jesus in a context where they are helped by friends lowered through a roof. Don't ask for anything. Told to get up and walk. And then, by the way, you see the There's a story of people turning to Jesus in anger. Of turning to Jesus as outcasts. Think of the hemorrhaging woman who puts her hand on the cloak of Jesus. Images of repentance. And, and those of us who are called to follow the disciples uh, in preaching repent and believe, there is, I think, a calling for us too to share in allowing these multiple contexts in which people can turn Jesus in the life of which they're a part, without all the sort of sacerdotal, um, all of the religious trappings that might be needed. But to know that in the end, we turn to Jesus because he is our salvation. Because salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that to find Jesus in whatever way, shape or form, to know him is to glimpse 
to know something of salvation. That's why in the end, I think we're told by Jesus, where were you when I was hungry and thirsty? And it's why so often those people in those situations actually offer a blessing to us. Um, I've probably talked in much more, there's a lot more stories and things in this and illustrations, trying to deal with it in 25 minutes and failing miserably and going on for more than half an hour. Uh, I, I left all of that out and probably made it come across very, uh, a bit too terse and a bit too highbrow. But in the end, all I want to do is to broaden our horizons, not with any sense that this is a completion, but to people to continue to broaden their horizons about the immeasurable height, depth and breadth of God's salvation in order that the church can once again be captured by seeking after that gold and by trying to communicate it to a world, to a city that desperately needs it. Thanks for listening. I, I, I'm trusting that you all are because I actually can't see any of your faces. Thank you.